From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Claire Powell is CEO of J.W. Hume, an iconic leather goods brand based in St. Paul, Minnesota. She didn't start it. She was brought in to turn it around. And as a retail reporter, I was the one who had to call her when I heard J.W. Hume was going to close its St. Paul manufacturing facility awkward. I was so impressed by Claire's candor, her vision for the next chapter, and her willingness to have coffee with me even after I wrote that article about manufacturing moving out of town and in some cases overseas. Claire is a true pro. She's worked in management roles with a number of apparel companies, including Bally, Wonderbra, and American Giant, that San Francisco startup that was made famous for the greatest hoodie ever made. She's moved from London to New York to San Francisco to North Carolina and now says she has become passionate about the Twin Cities. Go figure. Thanks for being here today, Claire. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Ali. Well, uh, so much to talk about. I guess let's let's start with kind of your your career path. You you were a fashion girl. Well, I was a math girl and a fashion girl. It was kind of an interesting combo. Growing up not in these parts. No, I grew up in England, as you might be able to tell from the accent, um, just north of London. And uh, I always loved math, but I always loved clothes and accessories. Mm -hmm. And so it was, I guess, inevitable in some ways that I would end up in general management for apparel and accessories. But it was never a long-term goal or a childhood dream. It all just, it played out as uh, as my career developed. So how did you get there? Because you pretty quickly landed with big brands. Yes, well, I was lucky enough to be recruited in London by Sarah Lee, as it was then, but the apparel division, which became Haynes Brands. Mm. Um, Soon after I started my career, I'd done some internships and small roles prior to that. And uh, I was just lucky enough to have some great mentors there, people who believed in me, people who gave me big, juicy roles, and of course, a lot of hard work and uh, hard graft. And I just moved up the, the ladder there. And, and again, uh, moving over to the States, to North Carolina, where they have the head office for Haynes and Champion and Bally, as you mentioned, uh, was just a great opportunity to be exposed and have a chance to manage those wonderful brands. And what were you? Were you a numbers person, creative person, yeah. both? Yeah, both. I was marketing. And in in, uh, Haynes Brands, marketing is really general management. So you're doing the SKU mix of the product, you're doing the P&L, you're making sure the marketing is effective, and really driving, being the center of the wheel, if you like, cross-functionally across the organization. So, Do you have an MBA? I do. Yeah, actually... um, you know, again, Haynes Brands looked after me so well. They sponsored me through my MBA, and I did it while I was working there from uh, Duke University in North Carolina. Huh. Um, wh- and so then at a certain point, you went out to San Francisco. Yeah. So after 14 years at Haynes Brands and having managed Champion and Bally and having great experience there, I was itching for something uh, different and a different location. And I'd had my kids in North Carolina. So an opportunity came up in California, actually for a private equity-owned nutritional supplement 
company. Oh, totally very different. different. But uh, very much CPG marketing, really a very rigorous marketing approach. And so a chance to work with some really big budgets. I was doing TV advertising and spending $70 million a year on that. And, and uh, you know, a huge uh, chance to really get my teeth into that. But it ended up being quite a short stint because the company uh, was acquired by Reckitt Benkiza shortly after I started there, which was a great result for everyone involved. It was the ultimate goal of the private equity company for that to happen. So uh, positive thing, but I found myself in California, you know, what's next? Mm -hmm. And I'd really missed the apparel that, you know, that category. And I was introduced to Bayard Winthrop, who's the founder and CEO of American Giant. Uh, and I was just so inspired by his vision and his passion and what he was trying to do. Uh, and I ended up uh, working with them. And this was a this was a true startup. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, small, I, very small. I started there about um, maybe a year, 18 months after they had founded, so not right at the beginning. But so they'd I, already had the big media they'd buzz? They had the big media buzz. How did they, they get known as the greatest hoodie ever? Was, was that their doing? Uh, the, a journalist wrote it on um, Slate.com, I think it was, um, that this was the greatest hoodie ever made, and it just took off. And, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, amazing. they were out of stock. I came in, they were still out of stock, you know, months later trying to catch up. So I was very involved in the supply chain and trying to figure that out and get us back in stock and just get a team of, you know, there were, I think, 11 or 12 of us in the company at that time. And I remember starting, it was in this really... Um, crummy office in the Mission District of San Francisco. Now they've got beautiful offices out the market and uh, it's all great. But uh, we had, I think it was like 11 chairs and 12 people. Mm-hmm. So it was like not everyone could sit down at the same time. <laughs> you know? And uh, we were just figuring out the team and the structure and roles. It was very much taking it from a group of people who had been literally packing boxes to saying, okay, you're going to be in product development. You're going to be in customer service. You know, what are all your structures and what are the roles? And big beginning to bring a little bit of order to the startup care. So very, very exciting times and an amazing company, which is still going, going from strength to strength today. So different from working for some of the bigger brands that you were familiar with. Yes. And that was something that was a real shock to me and something that I think is, it's just a really interesting for uh, people who work in big companies to understand that working for a small startup is so different and vice versa. And there's pros and cons with both. I love different things about both. Uh, but just to give a few examples, um, you know, in in a big company, you're really dealing, your biggest challenge I found was dealing with the work coming at you. So you're you know, dealing with uh, time management and which priorities to deal with first and the politics of who's going to what meeting and all of those kind of things. It's, it's really tough and there's a lot of challenges with that. But when you're in a startup, you are creating the work. Mm-hmm. You come into your desk in the morning, there might be hardly any emails, but you've got to go out into the world and create the demand and create the business. You're building it. So it's a, it's a different mindset and a different skill. And there's no place to hide. You know, in a big company, you can have an off day. You know, you could have had a busy weekend and uh, come in on Monday and, you know, just have a day where you're quietly at your desk plodding through things. There's no chance of that in a startup. I mean, everything you do every day is making a huge impact. And that's the joy of it. Mm -hmm. But again, it's that 
constant pressure. So it's, just really different. It's interesting. You know, we've had a lot of people on, by all means, who are the person, who are the found, the founders, you know, the people right. who have started the thing. Yeah. Um, you weren't the founder, but you were very close to the founder and coming in. What is that like? Do you, can, is it possible to feel as invested? You're probably being asked to do an enormous amount of work, but do you care as much when it isn't yours? I think uh, being a founder is different because it's your baby. And in many cases, people have given up so much for that vision. But I think as someone coming in, not the founder, you can still care as much, but it's different. And actually, I think it's really healthy to have both of those in the organization because the founder can be almost irrationally attached to certain Mm -hmm. things about the business. And someone coming in can feel as passionate about driving success because you know, usually, you know, you're compensated based on equity and those type of things. So you need, you know, your financial future and your career future is is just as based on it as the founder. But you might have a different perspective and a little less deep personal attachment to the way things are. Sure. You're not willing to work for free. You're not willing to work for free. Well, yeah, probably not. Probably not. Um, But uh, but I I don't know. I think if you really believe in the mission of something... um, you know, there's. I mean, you've interviewed people. I think where someone started the business and then someone's come in and mm-hmm. and um, added on, and and they've just because they believed in the mission so much. You know, they've become part sure. of it. Sure. So. so, how long did you stay at American Giant? I was there for a little over a year. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then I I moved around a little bit. I was really looking for geographically where do I want to be with my family? What's the right kind of role for me? I was, you know, just exploring different options. So I worked for a watch company and did a lot of licensed business, worked on like Ted Baker watches, things like that, which was was fun and exciting. Got to meet Kenneth Cole, who's just an amazing person. Um, And I worked for a cosmetics company in New York as well, making a lot of private label, um, beauty accessories and things like that. But ultimately, I ended up moving from California to the Twin Cities to work for J.W. Hume. How did they find you? How did you find them? (laughs) Well, I was, you know, again, just thinking, what's next? What's the right place for me? Where do I want to be? From a career perspective as well as a geographic perspective. And a recruiter reached out to me about the position. And I think based with my um, experience with American Giant and that, that whole Made in America piece, as well as my general management skills overall, you know, my name had popped up somehow or another. Uh, and uh, I remember the the night before I spoke to the recruiter, I said to my husband, you know, I'm talking to this recruiter tomorrow. Uh, I, you know, I'm doing it for networking reasons. It's not going to come to anything because, you know, the job is in Minnesota. So, you mm-hmm. know, I, is your I, husband also from the UK? He is, yeah. And uh, we and was never, he like, it, "Where's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Minnesota?" Yeah. His geography is pretty good, but kind of, yeah. Um, so, um, but anyway, I once I heard about the the brand and the business and the heritage of it and the beautiful product and the challenges that they were facing uh, and just the opportunity to uh, be the CEO of a company that's fully vertical, you know, having the manufacturing and the distribution and the marketing and everything all under one roof uh, and just knowing that it was struggling but needed 
you know, a leader to turn it around. That was just really exciting to me. And then, you know, the people were great uh, that I met through the interviews and the team that I met when I visited. Just a great, great bunch of people. And I was just inspired by the whole thing. Did you know J.W. Hume before you got that call? I did not. Okay. I did not. But Which I you're probably like, there's an opportunity, yeah. right? <laughs> right, um, exactly. So, but, Back up one second. In regards to J.W. Hume, I assume you probably went back and read all the stories from from yes. a Twin Cities perspective. Yes. Um, and in when sort of the whole heritage movement really rose up, I yes. mean, they were J.W. Hume rode that wave. I mean, they were really the yes. the shining example. And I think it was the Wall Street Journal story. Yes, that I would like to take credit for some of the stories I wrote, but I have to oh, give I'm credit to the Wall Street Journal um, for for. Oh, I, Holding them up, J.W. Hume was more than uh, had been around for more than a century. What year did it start? 1905. Okay, mm-hmm. 1905, and it had been a catalog business and a real. Yes. Uh, what were the? Do you want to talk a little bit about the early roots of the company? Yes, I'd love to. the The company was started by John Willis Hume uh, in St. Paul as an awnings business. So, you know the the awnings that were out of in the front of all the big beautiful houses around sure. St. Paul, and then began making tents. Made tents for the army actually in World War. One because of the high quality and really you know, strong outdoor appeal of the the canvas that was used, and then gradually got into uh, field sports and um, you know outdoor sporting bags. So whether it's gun cases or fishing cases or shop bags and that that real kind of canvas, um, and then was making bags for brands like Goki and Orvis, mm-hmm. some of those real classic travel bags that are the silhouettes are still around today, which is so exciting. And then over time, the awnings business was separated off. The company went through different ownership and gradually got more and more into the leather business and leather bags and adding leather into the mix. Uh, So really uh, began to evolve a little bit away from the canvas, but there's a huge amount of competition in the canvas market, as, as we've seen, um, you know, with, with the likes of, you know, Filson and Herschel and all of that. So just uh, mo- focusing more on really, really high quality leather bags, but not losing that spirit of adventure and outdoors and quality and craftsmanship and everything that came from the the roots of the company. And somehow it just kept going for decades, (laughs) right? I mean, that's the amazing amazing. thing. And then in the, what, like early 2000s or was it around 2010? I mm-hmm. think that article was 2009, 10, 10, okay. something like that. Yeah, 2009 um, maybe. So it was Jen Gorino yes, yes. and a partner who saw the opportunity. This yes. brand existed. It was manufacturing in St. Paul. Right. And Jen, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, my recollection is she really had the vision that like, hey, we could bring this back. This is an amazing story. Right. And I think at that time as well, there was, as you said, that whole movement and not only a movement which you know, I'm sure we'll talk about is, is still out there in terms of understanding where things are made and how they're made and all of that. Uh, but a, tre- a true look and feel trend for real Americana look and right. that kind of old school, which has faded since then. But at yeah. that time, that was a real opportunity. Yeah. And Minnesota really had so much to contribute to that trend, which was a national thing, that even international, but mm-hmm. Red Wing Boots yes. and Duluth yes. Pack. We have yeah. so many of these truly, you know, homegrown, outdoors-inspired yes. heritage brands. Yes. And and Jen was um, was at the center of creating Northern Grade, which became a big pop-up experience mm-hmm. that was all about mm-hmm. celebrating those brands. And right. it was a good ride and it was there was a lot of buzz but the business didn't the the sales weren't exactly matching the hype well it's tough right you know it's uh 
we all read about these brands and see this publicity and think, wow, they must be doing great. But it doesn't always translate into sales. Or even if it does translate into sales, does it translate into profitable sales? Mm -hmm. How much are you spending to get that hype versus what are you getting back? Well, and one of the big disconnects, I think, with the whole heritage thing is the, the, the kids and the Instagrammers and everybody who was so excited and thought all these brands were so cool – they weren't necessarily the people who could afford to buy them. Correct. Right? Yes, a JW exactly. handbag isn't cheap. Red Wing it's boots not, aren't cheap. A Fairbowl right. blanket. You know, yeah. I mean, these are expensive purchases. Yes, they really are. And that's always the challenge between wanting to be relevant and on trend and having bars and having people talk about you, but making sure you don't alienate the people who can actually afford to buy your products. And right. uh, and also for us, it's it's the money, but it's also the mindset. We're, you know, people who are buying a JW Hume bag because of the price and also because of the look and the styling and the feel of it are buying something they're going to use for years and years and years to come. Mm-hmm. They're not switching it out next year for the next cool thing. You know, it's an investment purchase. So they've got to be of the mindset where they're ready to make a decision about what their briefcase is going to look like for the next 10 years, sure. not the next six months. So when you got this call, um, at that point, the company had been taken over by like a, a private equity Yes, firm? yes, a private equity company um, out of the Northeast, yep. Mm-hmm. And how does that work? I mean, that's kind of, people don't really know what, I mean, what what, what does that mean Well, exactly? I think uh, the, in this case, it's very different to other private equity experiences that I've had and I have friends that experience in that it's really a a passion and a personal interest of the uh, the family that that um, you know are behind the private equity company. So they you know read about it in the Wall Street Journal. You know really wanted to see the company do well. Really you know believed again like like I did coming in in making giving this heritage brand a future and making sure that it stays healthy for the long term. So it's really... It wasn't uh, just about making it profitable and selling no, it? No, not at all. I mean, you know, a lot of private equity companies have a, you know, five-year or maybe seven-year horizon. They're looking to recoup their investment and more. And this wasn't that. It was, yes, I mean private equity, they're business people, right? They want a return and we'll come on sure. to that. <laughs> but, um, you know, they want it to work and they want it to succeed, but it was more, it was a longer term view and it was more about how can we sustain this amazing brand. Okay. And and there's pros and cons with that. So what that means is that the private equity uh, company people are very invested in the brand and what it looks and feels like and what's happening and, and all of that. So they're very... Um, you know, passionate and have lots of ideas and feedback. And that's great. But it also means that they're... They're up in your business. Yeah, which, which, to be honest, they're great people and they've loads of great ideas. So it's that's really good. So, but it's not just about, at the end of the month, giving the you know, P&L. Of course, right, we do that too. Right. So you come in as CEO. You're the boss. You're running the show. But yet you do have to answer to this company. 100%. Yeah, I have to deliver the results. And when you arrived, what did you what did you assess and did you consider running back to San Francisco <laughs> or London? Was no, it worse well, than you thought? Well, I think uh, I don't know if this is other people's experiences, but you know, I find that every role you go into is there tends to be a lot under the covers that is worse than you mm-hmm. thought it was going to be. I'm an eternal optimist, which means I live in an eternal world of disappointment because everything's <laughs> no, nothing's ever quite as good as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, but um, but it keeps me going, so I don't mind. Uh, but um, so so yeah, there were some 
further issues uh, and, and some of the strategies that I thought would be really effective weren't as effective as I thought. So coming in, I didn't really focus as much on the manufacturing side. We were you know, under capacity, so we didn't really need to worry about efficiency there. So I really focused on the marketing side and trying to drive demand for the products and get the word out there and build awareness of the brand and, and all of that. And this was what year when you... So this was um, early 2017. Okay. So 2017 was really that, that first year that I was in the business and really focused on that marketing side of things. As you mentioned earlier, we had been very much driven by catalogs and uh, sending you know, our marketing spend was really um, focused on direct mail and catalogue business and using that to drive traffic to the website to drive sales. And we all, the board and myself and management, all really believed that we could reach new people and reach people in a more efficient way by using all the digital tools that are out there today. Mm-hmm. And so we moved, we shifted the marketing spend really from being vast majority catalog to more of a balance between digital and catalog. I'm fascinated by how many catalogs still arrive in the mail. I mean, do do people still shop that way? Well, you know, they're getting more and more prevalent. And I think... um, there's a number of reasons for that. One is, you know, digital advertising has become so expensive. So, you know, Google and Facebook have realized what they've got, which is a lot of power. And uh, it's, you know, it's it's very, you can target very, very uh, efficiently and very, very, uh, um, you know, precisely through those channels. But you're going to pay for it. Hmm. And it's very hard to bring a whole brand to life in a sort of two inch by two inch square on a screen. Obviously, there's ways to do that with video, and a lot of people are doing it incredibly effectively and having great results. But it's you know, a catalog is like putting out your own magazine. It gives you you, a chance to tell the story. Yeah. So a lot of these digitally native brands are adding catalogs to their mix. Um, So which is is interesting because actually it's made our job even harder because now we're up in the catalog world. We're now up against a whole stack of catalogs that people are getting through their doors. So actually, the catalog business for us is becoming less and less effective as there's more and more competition in that area. So we're kind of doing the reverse journey that a lot of these other digitally native brands are doing and just trying to get the balance right. Sure. So so did you have traction? Did you have early successes as you started thinking about the marketing of J.W. Hume? We had Mixed results, I would say. We had some great successes uh, and just in terms of really optimizing things like Google search and just getting that really ramped up. Um, But overall, we thought that the efficiency of digital would be so much higher than the efficiency of catalogs. And really, it wasn't. It was more on par with it. Hmm. Uh, Having said that, I think we could have executed better. I think our creative could have been better. You know, creating the content for all this digital advertising is a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's upside from that. And one of the challenges in particular with J.W. Hume, it seems, is locally people know who they are. Minnesotans love Minnesota brands. Right. Um, But maybe in other parts of the country, they didn't know the story or they weren't as aware. Yes, and you're selling something that's... Uh, the real benefit of it is the amazing physical experience of the beautiful leather and the you know, the size and shape of the brand and the functionality and how it looks and feels and smells and the solid brass hardware and all of that. And, and you weren't got, really in stores. Right. You're, you're online. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, a huge challenge. And um, 
you know, not, and again, you've got a two inch by two inch square on a screen. How do you get that all to come across? So did you start trying to get the product in more stores? We at that time uh, didn't. We had a small wholesale business in some specialty stores where, you know, in Martin Patrick three, for example. But the business model just wasn't geared to be able to afford to do a big wholesale program. It's mm. v- very, very expensive. You know, the retailers want to take a, a large cut of the uh, of, of the retail price, and we just weren't geared up for that. So that really wasn't an option, which is why the real focus on driving demand for the brand directly with consumers was really the, the focus. Sure. So yep. meanwhile, and, and this is part of the appeal for reporters like me, in St. Paul on West 7th Street, you've got this magically beautiful manufacturing center and people who have been with the brand for decades and they are literally making these bags by hand. I mean, just amazing environment, amazing uh, um, facility, just doing incredible things. But at a certain point. But yeah, I mean, I think the challenge is that when you own your own manufacturing, it's all about covering your overhead. So you're paying your rent, your management team, your, you know, building maintenance, your you know, machine maintenance, you're, you're paying that whatever, right? So the more volume you have going through that factory, uh, you, you, the better because you're covering those costs and you can spread out the cost across more different units. And so you're tempted or you're driven to make as much stuff as possible to do that. But then you end up with excess inventory. You eat a lot of cash to build that inventory and then you sell it at a markdown if you don't sell it through at full price. So you're in this very challenged situation. So the the way to really drive volume or what you need when you own your own manufacturing is a diverse customer base. You know, mm. you need to be making products for, for many different people so you can offset those highs and lows and make sure you have a constant stream of throughput. But that's a whole different business, right? Then you're into B2B sales. You're developing product for other people. You need a whole P- different PD department. It's it's a huge, like, energy Mm-hmm. Focus. You and know, it's you not to, really what JW yeah, was designed so, to be. So yeah, in the meantime, we've got this incredible brand that's you know got these beautiful products, it's got this fan base of customers, and it needs nurturing, it needs building, it needs marketing, it needs to be made relevant, keep being relevant. You know, it's not you can't just sort of sit back and, and let it be. It needs all this focus. So you've got these. T- priorities that are really pulling in different directions or or not necessarily different directions but uh, that are are spreading resources too thin Um, so we ended up having to make a really difficult decision right are we a manufacturer are we a retailer are we a brand who are we and what does that mean we should do because ultimately the business has to sustain itself and, you know, it hadn't done that for, you know, 10, 10 or more years. No, so, pro- it had not turned a profit. Right. So that that is just unsustainable. So it's like, okay, it really was a fork in the road moment. It's not a choice that anyone, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And you it's know, not it, a choice you came here to make. I mean, no, you didn't know this is what you were no, signing up for. A hundred percent not. And um, But did it get to a point where your where ownership was like, look, we can't keep covering this? Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, I... I think they had given it a lot longer than most would mm-hmm. um, and had been really patient. And it really was just, you know, a moment of, okay, what's going to happen here? Because it's we either make a sharp right turn or mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be really ugly. So how did you decide? Well, again, it was 
you know, running numbers every which way up and down and just seeing what all the different options were. And coming back to the vision of the brand, right? So our overarching vision for JW Hume is to provide these really high quality leather goods to people who want bags that can keep up with their lifestyles. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about being a companion on life's journeys. Our bags are really rugged and resilient. And our customers are out there living life. They're traveling, they're out enjoying food and drink. And they they want a bag that can keep up with them and they don't have to worry about it getting scratched or dented or anything like that. In fact, they want that. They want the bag to tell their story and get better with age and all of those things. But to do that and provide that incredible quality and that incredible styling and that incredible functionality at a price that's market right, that means we can be at a scale, that means the business is viable, um, we really had to change the business model and change the supply chain. So ultimately, just looking at all those things and the cost of marketing and the cost of uh, driving the business, it really came down to we need a new business model. So what did you do? You you closed the manufacturing center so, in St. Paul. Yeah. So then we were, OK, we need to find people who can manufacture this product for us um, at the quality that we want with our materials. So we want to keep the leather the same. We want to keep the brass hardware, all of those things the same. Keep the quality of the stitching, all of the things that we work so hard on the same. Who can do that for us? Can they do it at a price that is going to make sense? And who's it going to be in hand? All the work that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And then how do we transition out of owning our own manufacturing in a way that's as least painful as possible? That There's no non-painful way to do it. What but was the day like when you had to tell the whole team and the people who work in the plant that you were closing? I mean, it was awful for everybody, right? I mean, I don't... You know, it was awful for me, but the most important thing was just how difficult it was for everyone else. And then, and then the, the day was one thing I think everyone was in shock, but I think then it was the weeks afterwards. And we, we tried to give people as much notice as we could. So it wasn't like we closed that day. You mm-hmm. know, we gave people uh, several weeks notice and then just working through that and then working with people to try and find other positions and um, all of things that go along with that was really then the focus. So it was it was, um, it was a very moving few weeks because we had a lot of people who, as you said, have been there many years. And How many people were, very, were, were working for JW Hume? Um, at that time, we had about, in total, including manufacturing, was about uh, 42 and now yeah. you are a team of? Now we're at a team of, a, in terms of employees, we're about eight people now. Um, but we do, we also have people who are part of the team, but they work as contractors. So we've got a team of about 12 people who are driving the business. So mm-hmm. it's a really different feel. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've got a really good team. And it's actually been really exciting to be hiring people again. You know, I've actually been hiring new store staff and new marketing people and things like that. So before we talk about the new chapter, I just want to talk for one more minute about manufacturing because we are at a time in the stories, uh, you know, about bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. consumers caring more about that. So what does this experience tell you and and how do you feel about the broader story about manufacturing? Is, is, Is the story just completely disconnected? connected from the reality of manufacturing products in in America? I mean, I think the story is real in that there is definitely more awareness about where things are made, where things come from. Uh, and I think younger people are much pay much more attention to that. And I think that's a challenge for all businesses. Uh, the question is, 
what are people willing to pay for and what do people really want at the end of the day? They want a you know, beautiful, well-crafted product and that's, that's at the right price. And there are definitely people who are really committed to buying only Made in America product. And I, I commend that. And honestly, just to be clear, we want to have everything made in America if we can do it and make the business viable. That, that is ultimately the goal. At the moment, we're not finding that that would make the business viable, so we're not able to do that. But we are trying to offer as many products as we can uh, made locally here in Minneapolis, and we've also got a, a partner down in Florida who's um, making some things for us. Um, but what we found in, in all the years of trying all these different things is that the amount of people who are driven by that and who are willing to pay the price to buy a product with that it's just we just didn't find enough of them to make the business viable. So I think um, the price difference is just still so great uh, to make here. And I think for different product categories, it's probably different. Our product is so labor intensive. It takes a long time of a person with great skills sitting you know, sewing and making a product. I mean, all the different pockets, all the different buckles, all the the zippers, everything. It's very, very um, you know, manual. Sure. And but can you keep the quality at the level that your customers are accustomed to if you take it overseas? Well, we have we have been very careful to work with partners that have high quality. So we're working with factories who. Um, are actually relatively expensive compared to a lot where a lot of leather goods are made. So we're working with factories who used to make Coach or used to make Dooney and Bork before they moved to cheaper places as they've you know grown and, and scaled. So hmm. we're working with the artisan version of the overseas manufacturing um, and people where you know come you know factories where. Um, our designer has long-term relationships with these people. We know them by name. You know, they're just as attentive to the quality. And, you know, I'd encourage anyone to come into our store, and we'll get onto that, but um, and just look at the quality and look at the the, um, the way the product's being made. And uh, I think they look great. Have the prices changed? We have reduced the prices, which is exciting. We wanted to share some of the benefits of the change with our customers. Um, and so, on average, they went down by about... Uh, 15 to 20%, but some hmm. products more than others. Some didn't change and some went down more. So um, they have gone down, um, which has been a nice thing to be able to offer, especially as we want the brand to reach as many people as possible. So you closed the your facility in St. Paul. That was just, when was that? Was that that was at the end of last year. Okay, yeah. end of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and then you start thinking about opening a retail store. You yes. used to have some retail on right. West 7th, uh -huh. but I mean, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like right. a fancy store. It was a, really was like a factory store. Right. I mean, it was in the front Which of the factory. Which was kind of fun, especially during really the Sam Sales. Oh yeah, yeah. So, well, we're gonna still have those. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but um, it was really fun, and it was a. I think it was really charming in its own way, and actually, mm -hmm. we did a pretty solid business out of there, despite the fact that the location and the parking and was not, nothing was ideal. But yeah. uh, it was great. But we really felt there was an opportunity for a few different reasons. One, we really wanted to continue to be a St. Paul company and have our offices in St. Paul and really have a presence in the community. And if we were going to be more focused on retail and e-commerce, we wanted that to be the heart of what 
the brand meant in St. Paul if it couldn't be um, our own manufacturing. So you built a store, a beautiful store on Grand Avenue, yes. which in St. Paul is kind of the, that's that's the hotbed of, yes. of retail. It's a good place to be, high yeah. traffic area. Yeah. Um, what has, that's a, it's a totally different business. Now you're thinking about displays oh my gosh, and yes. customers. Yes. And, well, it's wonderful talking to customers as they come in the door. I've really personally enjoyed that. And I know the team have too. So that's great. And it makes you think about the product differently as well when you see it on display and you see and it, watch people interacting with it all the time. So that's been great. But yes, it's it's different challenges and it's POS systems and, you know, uh, different events and doing partnership events with people. And how do we do that? And driving traffic and, you know, just very different things. But we've got a great, um, I've got a great director of sales. who has got great uh, retail experience and she's doing a terrific job. So you still believe in brick and mortar retail? I do. Um, I think, uh, in, from my perspective, I know it's getting a lot of bad press, or not, I guess not bad press, but a lot of closures. The retail also, apocalypse. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, but this, I think, the closings are staggering. Yes, but I think what's happened is this country just became oversaturated with retail square footage, right? I think, I, I don't know, I may not have the stats right, but I think the square footage per person in the United States compared to the uh, retail square footage per person in the UK is like eight to one or something. So I think it was just over overbuilt mm-hmm. and it had to just have an adjustment. It's like a stock market adjustment and you need to come back to be the right. It doesn't mean that it should go away completely. It's like, what's the right amount? And then as e-commerce becomes so much more accessible and free shipping both ways and just such convenience. You know, that's going to eat into it a little bit, but I don't think that's, there's going to always be both. And I think for a brand like us, where we're almost all e-commerce, the upside is, you know, physical retail. For a brand that's all physical retail, the upside is e-commerce. Of course, all the brands are fully bricks and mortar are closing those and going into e-commerce and all the brands that are digitally native are opening retail stalls. And the reality is you probably have to do a mix of all of it and just create a really great experience. Yes. And yeah, I mean, experience is all. And then it's a, what's the blend? Do you have, you know, stores uh, like Love Your Melon that's an experience store, but actually all the sales are online. I mean, it's just the whole thing is blending. So will you open more JW Hume stores or are you trying to will you try to get into department stores or high-end boutiques? What's what's the plan? Yeah, so I hope so. Uh, <laughs> nothing's in the works right now and um, but I, you know the store is going really well. I think it's been great to see the brand come to life. Uh, I'd love to uh, see us open more stores and probably in the Twin Cities at least to begin with uh, where we've got the the real um, fan base mm-hmm. of the brand. Um, has there been a, a, a backlash? I mean, have there been people coming in saying, I can't believe you're not making these bags in St. Paul anymore? There are a few people who are just are really sad, you know, and, and they've, you know, like we all are. Um, this isn't the brand that is what they were used to, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's hard for people to understand the the, the business side of it and what's driving it, you know, this um it's a business. It's you know. It's not just for the, us to all feel good about, right? Right. Um, so there are definitely a few people, and we we really try to um, personally talk to them and help them understand where we're going and help them understand the quality and that that kind of thing. And and, and some have really understood it and, and continue to embrace the brand, and some haven't, and that's okay. I mean, I think that if you are really committed to only buying made in America. I think your choices are, you know, getting fairly limited. But 
you know, good for you. And I hope that as we, you know, continue to make some things made in America and more things over time, um, people will, you know, Sure. Keep an eye on us. Yeah. Um, things are trending in the right direction. But things are trending in the right direction. I mean, the business model looks good. It's much healthier. Now we're turning our, our mind again to how do we grow? How do we get this brand out there again? How do we you know, bring in new customers? We've, we've really, uh, you'll see coming through the fall, we've got some gorgeous new products. And they're modernized. It's still the same old J.W. Hume, still the same brass hardware and beautiful leather and all of that. But just because we're making with a lot of different people, we're able to really refine our product and do different things in the in the make of the product. So we've got some really new things coming. And how do we bring that to a new audience that's going to fall in love with the brand and, and really help us grow it? So that's what we're turning our attention to now. What advice would you give to a, a new a startup brand that wants to manufacture in the US? I would just structure your business model around that, really understand you know, what prices people are going to pay and figure out what your overhead would need to be, what you can pay, how it's how it's going to make sense so that it can be viable, so it can be sustainable. Um, and, uh, you know, just do some hard work on the math up front and, uh, you know, figure it out so that, you know, maybe there's other places that you can save if you want to spend, um, you know, money on the labor or maybe it's a way that you can make the product that's more automated that can help with that, you know. Sure. I, so it's really about the business model. And then the other thing that I think you you could probably give a lot of advice on is just leadership and making really difficult, not so fun decisions. How do you how do you prepare yourself for that? I think it's taking the time to really process, really think about how it relates to your own values. And that can be tough, right? I um, Seeing people lose their jobs is, is not something that equates with anything that I'm happy about. Um, and then I think being honest with people about that and being as transparent as you can and there's sometimes limitations to that but you know I've I've obviously had a lot of difficult conversations over the last six months or a year and I've tried to always be honest always be as kind as you can always be as supportive as you can but not um not hide anything. I try and live by you know Brene Brown's uh, uh quote of uh Clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Hmm. And I struggle with that because, mm-hmm. you know, it's I like hard everything to be, to be direct nice. when the news yeah. isn't good. Yeah, but yeah. I think that's, and sometimes I've really had to steal myself and um, just, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in mindfulness and, you know, listening to your body, but just really checking with your body and, you know, just take that moment. And then, you know, just be transparent, but remember that the person you're talking to is, is a person with a family and um, hopes and all of those things. And, right. you know, how can you... But also that of... it's just, it's about a business, like you said. It's yeah. not a personal thing. A hundred percent it isn't, yeah. I know you're into meditating. Was that something that came out of the last <laughs> year? <laughs> uh, or have it's you... definitely helped. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I, my, I've, I've had many different stressful times as as you know, as most people have. And so for a few years now, uh, it's I've on and off, uh, you know, had it to be a really helpful element to overall wellness, of course, you know, exercise and getting good night's sleep and all of those kind of things too. But I've really found it helpful to, um, and particularly over the last year, to you know, deal with stress levels and to be 
mindful in communications. You know, mm-hmm. how do you really empathize with the other person and uh, try to to do your best in these difficult situations. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not a hour a day meditator. I can't claim to do, but I, you know, I try and do ten or twenty minutes most days. Doesn't always happen. Yeah. But uh, but it's um, been a real positive thing for me. That's great. That's really interesting. And does your mind ever wander to like beautiful yellow bags, like the yeah. one that you're carrying today? <laughs> that's All my problem. I can't stop. The- <laughs> well, that's the point. As soon as your mind wanders. As soon as you realize your mind wandering, that's the moment when you're gaining mm-hmm. strength. You're great gaining awareness mm. of, of knowing that your thoughts are just thoughts and they're going to come and they're going to go. Okay. And you're same with your emotions. They're going to come and they're going to go. And that's really the, the win. So your mind wandering isn't a problem. Okay. Uh, it's actually realizing your mind wandering is is a win. So you're doing well. All right. Thank <laughs> you. I'm glad to know that. Um, more new products to come from J.W. Hume this Gorgeous, and... gorgeous products, some beautiful colors and some gorgeous new bags. We actually got a photo shoot going on today and I'm getting texts of, of some of the pictures and they look fantastic. So very excited to, to do that. We're also looking at how can we give back more to the community. So now that uh, we're a new business model, I want to figure out some um, cause-related partnerships that we can do as a brand. And actually, you're, by all means, and some of the people you've interviewed have really inspired me on that. Aww. So thank you for that. Well, that's great uh, to hear. Yeah. And and that leads me to my final question, which is your newfound love of the Midwest and, oh, and Minnesota. Yeah, with all the yeah. places you've lived and done business, what what are your observations about business in the Twin Cities? What do you what do you like about living here? Well, business and personal, just just really love it. Um, from a, from a personal culture point of view, I just think you know the Minnesota nice thing is such a cliche, but um, honestly, I think that the terrible weather keeps out the riffraff. <laughs> and uh, but but honestly, I think people here want to be here. There's a lot of people from here who've left and come back. And other places I've lived, people are moving there for the money or for the job or for this. People here really want to be here, and that really flows through the culture. Uh, and there's just so many great resources from all the the lakes and the you know outdoor activities, and even in the winter with skiing. And, and things and and then the arts and the theater and, and all of that is for, so you know I have two young boys and it's just tons for us all to do and then professionally I just was amazed. I mean, so quickly after I got here, I was introduced to people who introduced me to other people and you know, formed a network, particularly of incredible women. Very quickly, I became a member of the Women Presidents Organization, the WPO, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the strongest uh, of the country is here. I think you're right. I yeah. think we have more, more chapters, chapters yeah. than yeah. any other city yeah. in the country. And so I almost had like an instant network and an instant group of amazing friends and support that I I could tap into, which has been just incredibly valuable. And I think also in the Twin Cities, we have the highest number of Fortune 500 companies per capita. Yeah. So, and the and some very charitable giving companies at that, so that really support the arts and, and all those things. So, you know, it's just been um, a great experience all the way around, which has been a huge blessing. Great. Well, we're glad you're here. Congratulations on the the turnaround. Still in progress. It'll yeah. be fun to see what happens next. But Claire, thank you for sharing your story on By All Means. Thank you, Ali. I've really enjoyed it. We are going back to the classroom next with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Well, 
as you heard, Claire stepped into challenging times with a longtime company. How do you lead through turmoil? Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Pat Hedberg is faculty director of the executive and healthcare MBA programs at the Opus College of Business. Pat, it seems really risky as a leader to take on a company that's in need of a total turnaround. Yes, it is. You're right. And this was a real risk for Claire to take in moving to this company. She hadn't been very clear about why she wanted to do that. And yet she knew that there were risks involved and the possibility of failure was big. Yeah. So um, so how do you, as a leader and as somebody who kind of, if you, if you want to be at the top, you got to be prepared to, to take the fall, right? So how do you, as a leader, prepare yourself for that, for stepping into a role where it's not your company, but now you're in charge and you've got to make the tough decisions? Yeah, this is a new role for Claire to take this on. And I, she recognized that and and understood the challenges of that. What you want to do is... Take time to get up on the balcony and to think strategically about what it is that is happening here. And I heard in her interview that she was doing that a lot. She was even trying to understand whether they were a manufacturing, a retail, or a brand. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference in terms of where you go. And so taking the time to step up and think strategically about what her role is, what the business model needs to be, and how she can implement that was really important to her. There are risks Failure is a good possibility, and yet that's a risk worth taking. Yeah, failure is not necessarily the worst thing. No, not at all. In fact, failure is a beautiful moment for learning. I, uh, that's a hard thing for people to get. We maybe need to come up with a completely different word than failure. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that taking those risks, in that, in that sense, you learn a lot about yourself, and you learn some important skills about how to do it better the next time. Right. You also said some really important things about separating you, the CEO, the boss, from you, the person, and not internalizing everything that's happening at a company, especially at a at a difficult time. Yeah. Sometimes we'll say, don't take it personally. I think that's really hard to not take it personally. The, the clarification there is there's a difference between you as a person and the role you're playing in this organization, for Claire being CEO. And she, as CEO, she has tough decisions to make. But also she is a person doing that. And the humanity that she can bring to that really helps her do her job better. She talked a lot about being transparent with people, listening to them. Those are all ways of showing she's human. So I don't mean that you're not a person doing this. (laughs) What I mean is that it's important to have some self-care and understand that I need time away from this role. I need time to get perspective and to become more resilient so I can be a good person in this role. Her meditation, her focus on being mindful, Mindful, the compassion, let her have the compassion she could bring to this role. Right. Great advice. Great insight. Pat Hedberg, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love it if you could give us a great rating and review as well. I'm Allison Kaplan on behalf of Twin Cities Business. Thanks for listening to By All Means.
takes teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. Oh,